everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I interview some pretty amazing disabled people, as well as allies of disabled people. Today, we're going to be talking to Toby Milden, who is a diversity and inclusion architect and the founder of Milden, a consultancy and advisory business on all things diversity and inclusion. I'm so excited to talk to Toby today about his practice as a diversity and inclusion strategist and consultant. He's also an SMAer, which we all know I love the most. I'm so excited to hop into today's episode. I think actually a lot of the role models that I grew up with were in the SMA community. Other adults with SMA who were just living a quote-unquote normal life um, and opening my eyes up to things like the ability to be able to drive with SMA from a wheelchair. One of my first jobs, I was working in consultancy and one of the, you know, my clients um, banned me from their office or the health and safety manager came around and and basically banned me from the office because they said that, you know, I was a fire hazard. A lot of disabled people are not seen as sexual beings, <laughs> that we are asexual and, um, you know, and the focus needs to be on fixing us and going for surgery and having physio and treatments and not a, not a lot of emphasis paid on our emotional well-being and our sexual health. Lovely. Well, Toby, thank you so much for joining us on the Wheelchair Activist. Um, I was just saying before I started recording that I feel that I know you because of being in the disabled community and we both have SMA. So I don't know how, but all of us tend to know each other. Um, but it'd be great if you could tell our listeners a little bit about you and what you do. Yeah, Emma, it's great to meet you. And um, the SMA community is really small, so it's it's very easy for us to know and know one another. Yeah. Um, so I am a diversity and inclusion consultant running out of my own practice. And I work with my clients who are medium to large-ish organisations uh, to help them develop their diversity and inclusion strategies. Uh, and then I also develop training and speaking and mentoring and consultancy as well. Amazing. And can you tell us a little bit about how that career evolved for you and sort of how you decided to set up your own practice for doing this type of work? Yeah, so I actually started off working in technology. So I used to work for um, Accenture, uh, an American healthcare technology company. And um, then I ended up at the BBC as a project manager, working on the BBC News website and the uh, TV on demand platform, which is called iPlayer. And uh, I did that for, for many years. And I, I, I kind of fell into diversity and inclusion. Um, I used to work very closely with our chief operating officer and he was concerned that our department within the BBC um, had a gender imbalance compared to the rest of the corporation. So only about 14% of our workforce uh, in the department were women 
and the BBC oh, had the, at the time, you know, had a 50-50 gender split. Um, it, it's a challenge that a lot of, you know, organisations in the technology and science and engineering space have. Um, and, you know, I worked in the department which ran the BBC's technology. So we were no exception. We were, you know, we were in the same boat as Facebook and Google and, and um, you know, such like. So... I worked with the management team to really address that, to, to get more women into technical jobs um, and loved doing it. And then twisted a few arms and turned it into a full-time job. I think that that's really interesting because, you know, I think we all know a couple of people who are disabled who end up working in diversity and inclusion in various capacities. But I think that that's so interesting that, you came to it not because you were trying to push the disability agenda, but because there was, you know, like you say, a gender imbalance. Yeah, that that was my first introduction. It was it was looking at gender, um, and I was on a steep learning curve in terms, you know, learning the diversity and inclusion trade, and uh, yeah, I suppose, you know, one of my first learnings was that actually diversity is a lot more than just women yeah. <laughs> or gender. Um, so uh, I worked with the senior leadership team um, to expand our uh, strategy to look at look at other dimensions of diversity. And, you know, that, that then included race and ethnicity and disability and et cetera. I, I have a really big question that I ask all of my guests and I'm aware it's a bit mean. But what does disability mean to you? Um, so for me, one of the first things that comes to mind, um, and I don't know if this is really discussed in the States or not, you'll have to enlighten me, um, is the kind of the difference between the medical and the social model of disability. So, you know, the medical model basically says that effectively, you know, there's something wrong with me that needs to be fixed. And, you know, that could be, the SMA that we both have and the focus is on what medical interventions are there or therapies like the new gene therapies and physio and you know, stuff like that. But then the social model says that actually, you know, we could be disabled by barriers that are presented like physical barriers where, you know, where there are steps where there should be a ramp or a lift, um, attitudinal barriers or procedural barriers. Um, and so that, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting dynamic. I I think I've you know said this before on the podcast, but my background with the social model was it was very interesting. I suppose is the way to say it. I thought, um, and you know, I'm just thinking of this because you mentioned about. The state, but I think it it could be that I was working under the assumption of the medical model because you know with SMA it's this it's that you know that is quote unquote lot wrong with us, um, which causes our disability, which means we use a wheelchair and all of that jazz. But it was really only when I was first prevented from doing something that was directly related to my disability that it clicked for me. And I thought, oh, I get the social model now. Mm, yeah. Because it, you know, I, up until that point, 
wasn't prevented from entering anywhere or doing anything that I wanted to do because of my disability. So it made the social model really relevant to me. And I now completely, you know, stand by it um, and really identify with it. So I think that that's, it's really interesting that, you know, you sort of have brought up both of those definitions in, in the way that, you know, disability is presented. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the work that you do at the moment in diversity and inclusion, sort of, first of all, what does that look like on the day-to-day, you know, sort of what does your average working day look like? So the work that I do probably falls into three buckets. So the first bucket is diversity and inclusion strategy. So basically a lot of organisations they know that they need to be doing something around diversity and inclusion, but they don't know what or how. So I go in and help them create a plan. And that plan is based on data, though, because that is often what's missing. And we we need to identify the, the, the issues that staff are facing in the workplace um, and why a business is not representative of the customers they serve or the geographic location that they're based in and so that's kind of like bucket number one um bucket number two is training and i've developed a number of um training courses that um i can just easily roll out off the shelf that are really popular ranging from looking at how we make uh so how bias affects our decision making all the way through to a talk where I talk about my own personal experiences of having SMA in the workplace and and how to be more disability confident as an employer. Um, And then the third area is is really, um, uh, you know, me working consultancy, coaching, mentoring, really guiding my clients, helping them have clarity on around DNI because it can really be a minefield for, for some organizations. That's so interesting. I I'm really fascinated by the bias. And you know, I think I if hopefully a few of our listeners will be familiar with the Harvard unconscious bias test. I don't know if that's something that you endorse or not, but essentially yeah. What it is, is there are different um, tests for different characteristics. Um, and as far as I know, that there isn't one on disability, or at least there wasn't last time I... Yeah, there checked. is one now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. And um, it essentially gives you a series of prompts or, you know, uh, associations to detect if you have any unconscious bias towards a particular group of people. Mm. Um is that a test that you endorse or do you think it's accurate? Um, it's not one that I endorse, but I do talk about it in my training. Um, the Harvard Implicit Association tests basically tell you if you have any bias in favour or against different groups of people. And I took the test uh, for disability and found out that I was mildly biased against disabled people. Interesting. Um, which is interesting given, you know, given that we were both born with SMA 
Um, my brother's got SMA as well. Um, I went to school with disabled kids. I've worked with loads of disabled people at work. Um, I mean, the reason why that bias exists is because of the social conditioning. Uh, grow, you know, growing up in a world where we don't have that many disabled role models, you know, looking at how disabled people are portrayed in films and TV and books. Um, you know, it, most Bond villains, for example, have some form mm. of disability or disfigurement. Um, and uh, and so therefore, you know, that that bias is a product of that 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 social conditioning. And and that's how bias works. You know, it, it's partly the way that our brains are wired and partly through social conditioning. And I think going back to the Harvard Implicit Association test, I mean, it's useful. It's a good conversation starter. But if it's managed poorly, people can mislabel themselves as being ableist, homophobic, racist, sexist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and interestingly, you know, once I became aware of my mild bias against disabled people, you know, what, what, what were then the consequences? If I was in a situation with that knowledge, uh, say that, that, you know, interacting with a disabled person, like doing a job interview, for example, or deciding who on my team should get promoted, um, you know, am I now going to go easier on disabled people? Because I know that I've, I've got that bias, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Um, so it is, it's useful. Um, I prefer to use the Neuro Leadership Institute framework um, when I do bias training, which looks more at bias within decision making, and then ultimately how those decisions impact on other people and diversity or inclusivity as a result. I'm definitely going to go away and do those um, those tests immediately after this, but I. I think that that's so interesting. I was going to ask you as, you know, just as you mentioned that it showed a slight bias against disabled people. I was going to say, is that a result of any internalized ableism, which is something that, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast, but I, you know, the way that you talked about social conditioning, that makes complete sense. You know, we are disabled ourselves, but we do still consume the same media and you know when you said about you know bond villains and things like that you know we we do see that we do internalize that from a very young age so you know it's it's but it's not hugely surprising yeah. to me um that we would have that bias and you know there there's so many layers within that um but I'm I'm definitely going to go away and have a look at that other tasks I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, the the um the Neuro Leadership Institute, um I I don't think it comes with a test that you can do for free online. Um but it, it's worth looking it up. You know, the, the Neuro Leadership Institute are based out of the States. Um they do various um training programs and and things like that. And bias is one of their one of their training programs. And they, they talk about five different types of bias that we often see in the workplace that impact decision-making. So they talk about similarity bias, you know, the fact that we like to hang out with people like ourselves, um, experience bias. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we like to get things done quickly rather than take our time, you know, experience bias where we take our perceptions to be the objective truth, um, distance bias, which is where we have a preference for things closest to us, in terms of time and space, 
And then safety bias, which is where we we like to play it safe. You know, we like to err on the side of caution and we want to protect ourselves against losses more than we seek out gains. And then when you have that conversation with managers in an organization, we can apply it to some of the decisions that they're making, like who they're going to hire, who they're going to promote, who they're going to award the next big project to, and then ultimately how that can impact on inclusivity in their team. I think that that's really interesting. And I was going to sort of, as you were listing off those different factors, I was going to ask you how you feel disability comes into all of those and particularly, you know, reflecting on conversations you've had as a consultant, because I I find that people are very unfamiliar with disability. So, you know, that I'm sure comes into one or, you know, multiple of those factors that you just listed because people won't want to go with the unknown. And, you know, there's this yeah. perception that, you know, disabled employees are less productive and therefore, you know, have an impact on profit. And, you know, it's something that is talked about so, so much. Um, and particularly by the wrong people sometimes, which is very unhelpful. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, yeah, ask you, How did you go about challenging those preconceptions regarding disability? I do it quite softly. So first of all, I get clients to try and air their assumptions or presumptions um, and false stereotypes and then, then have a conversation about it. So if we looked at, you know, disability, for example, if we looked at the, the, the neuro leadership seeds model, um, the expedience bias says that we prefer to take, you know, we prefer to get things done quickly rather than take our time. And there's this, maybe this unspoken and indeed sometimes spoken assumption that disabled people can't work as fast as anyone else, that they're going to get, you know, they're going to be slower. Now, managers don't often like to admit that. (laughs) But if I can draw it out of them, then we can have a conversation about, well, where, where that where's that you know where that where's that stereotype or assumption coming from um is it true or not you know it, and it's mm. not often true so it's like um yeah once we once we move it into our consciousness we can then talk about it and and try and break it down i yeah i i really resonate with that i i consider myself quite a fast worker so you know and a quite productive worker as well so when i hear that from other people I think no it's not true but I I really hear what you're saying about moving it into that conscious space Mm -hmm. and giving people the opportunity to air that and then you can address it but it's doing that in a way that doesn't make people feel judged or you know criticized so I completely see why you as you say go about that softly um so I just want to go back to something that you said earlier about, you know, us being the product of our environment and of our culture and, you know, the way that disability is portrayed. So I wanted to ask you, who were your role models when you were growing up? Were were there any disabled role models? Um, no, not particularly, if I'm honest. Um no, no, you know, and people would always, I suppose, growing up, you know, people would always say, well, you know, there, there's that guy in a wheelchair on James Bond. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to grow up to be like him. 
And to my knowledge, I think he got scooped up by a helicopter and thrown down a chimney and died. Oh, yeah. Um, no, we don't want that. <laughs> I can't remember what Bond film it was. But I was like, OK, yeah, that's not that's not a great model. Uh, great role model. I mean, you, you know, there, there are a number of disabled um, business leaders out there. You know, uh, Richard Branson talks very openly about his dyslexia. And, you know, he's, a, you know, to me, he's a fantastic role model. You know, Elon Musk um, is on the neurodiversity spectrum. Um, so, you know, they are, there are out there. But obviously, you and I have got a visible physical disability. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think actually a lot of the role models that I grew up with were in the SMA community. Um, so, just other adults with SMA who were just living a quote unquote normal life um, and opening my eyes up to things like the ability to be able to drive with SMA mm. from a wheelchair. Um, and we've got some high profile people with SMA as well. You know, we've got Jane Campbell, Baroness Jane Campbell over in the House of Lords in the UK. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, those are the, some of the role models that I had when more more when I kind of probably reached teenage years. Mm. I remember the first time I heard about Jane Campbell, and yeah, I completely agree. I find her an amazing person, and um, uh, she very kindly once took me on a sort of back behind the scenes tour of the House of Lords once. Um, and she said to me, I shook Barack Obama's hand in this room. And I just thought, that's the coolest sentence uh-huh. I think I've ever heard. Um, yeah. So now I, and I'd love to have her on the podcast um, at some point, but she's busy now trying to better all of our lives. So, yeah. But at some point we'll get there. Um, but I think that that's a really interesting point, you know, about your role models, essentially as you were getting a bit older, just doing the everyday things that I, you know, even us can think that we can't do. Like you mentioned about driving a car being that example. And I think that that's really powerful because, you know, I, I talk about representation a lot and really like that's a huge motivator behind this podcast is showing disabled people doing a wide variety of things so that I can provide that representation and people can start to see themselves doing that, um, you know, whatever it may be. So that's that's really powerful. And I'm really interested in, you know, what uh, you find are the biggest challenges that you face in your work in terms of convincing people on the diversity and inclusion point um because just before i'm recording this with you i was recording um another podcast episode with chris fry um who is a lawyer and he talks about the challenge of um convincing people of the commercial aspect of you know inclusion and equality so how you know how do you go about those barriers and what are those barriers that you come across? The the most common barriers are um, diversity inclusion not being a high enough priority, that the other things in business um, take priority. And 
I talk to loads of organizations and there, there's, there seems to always be something that comes along. Um, a couple of years ago, it was Brexit. Then it was the pandemic. In a year or two, it will be something else. So one, I think one of the biggest challenges is really prioritizing diversity and inclusion, um, making mm. sure it's prioritized by people at the top of the business. Because if the chief executive and the board of directors of a business are not talking about it, with a sense of urgency and and as a high priority, nobody in that nobody else in the business is going to take it seriously. So first of all, is that it's that priority. Um, the second thing is understanding and realizing that if 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 an organisation wants to do this properly, they're going to have to put resources, people, time, and money behind it. They can't do it on a shoestring and um and uh and th the benefits of doing diversity and inclusion well you know will reap rewards for the organization um so but the thing is mm -hmm. there has to be that commitment that people's time and budget is going to be invested in it as well i completely agree and it's something that you know, came up when I was having um, a conversation on this podcast with Jason Bates over at Tesco. And we talked about how Tesco, I think it was me who said this really, has put their money where their mouth is in terms of their commitment to diversity and inclusion and particularly the way that they serve their disabled customers. Mm. So I completely agree with you there that the resource needs to be there. It can't just be... You know, it can't just be our talk. No, no. Um, so, so that's really interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, with you said that, you know, you sort of ended up in diversity and inclusion almost, you know, by accident. You said you started in tech and now you run your own company. Um, has anyone ever told you that you can't do the job that you're doing now? No, no, <laughs> no, no one's ever said that to me. Well, that's really good. I yeah, haven't, yeah. I'm, I'm so pleased. I think, you know, people can subtly imply things or, you know, in my case, I was outright told, you know, oh, you, you know, I won't be able to be a barrister because of X, Y, and Z, um, which, you know, I didn't end up doing, but it sort of goes along those same lines. Um mm. So I have I have had that though in in previous mm. jobs. Um, when I was working at the BBC as I was a, a project manager in technology, and um, I, I wanted to move into production management and TV. I thought it would be sexier working in TV rather than yeah. you know on a website or apps. And I kept coming up across these barriers, and they were often unspoken um, concerns. And it wasn't until I had a mentor who, you know, was quite you know, forthcoming and basically said that, yeah, so some people that I had been networking with to try and move into production management had a concern that I wouldn't be like physically able to do the job. That if, for example, I had to go and do a TV show in the middle of a field somewhere, you know, how would I get there in my wheelchair and um, yeah, you know, production assistants or managers are expected to also be able to help out and lift heavy camera equipment. You know, how would I do that? And 
it was a lesson that I learned that basically, you know, with those with those people, there was a lack of creativity in trying to flex the job. Um, it's true that I would struggle to lift heavy camera equipment because our muscles don't work properly. However, you know, there are other people on the team that could do that. And then I could do the bits that I could do, like work on the spreadsheet. Mm. And and also, you know, who, who said that I would work in a genre where I would have to film in the middle of a field or a middle of a desert? I could have a nice, cosy, uh, you know, I could work in the Newsnight studio, mm. uh, which is, you know, lovely and warm in a basement in London. So um, it's, uh, you know, I think I, I learned it was just often a lack of creativity when it came to, mm. you know, designing the job th- and thinking about how the job could be completed. Yeah, I completely see what you mean there. I think it's, first of all, a lack of awareness of reasonable adjustments there, mm. you know, and like you say, you know, getting another person on the team to do the lifting of the equipment. But I'm forever saying that disabled people are the best creative problem solvers. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we have to come up with little adaptations of ways of doing things to go about our everyday life. So, you know, let us work with you on that. And like you say, you could, you know, very well have worked on different programs. You know, you don't have to be on, you know, planet Earth with David Attenborough in, in the middle of Iguana Island or whatever yeah. it is. Um, you know, you there are so many programs that, the BBC makes that would be completely accessible. So, uh, yeah, it's it's challenging when people make assumptions of what you can and can't do. Mm, yeah. Um, what would you say that you are the most proud of? And that can be, you know, career-wise, personal-wise, anything really. Um, I think, I mean, there's been lots of achievements along the way. Um, since I started doing diversity and inclusion work at the BBC, I've seen things change and improve and, you know, people getting jobs um, where they might have struggled beforehand and you know, that kind of thing. That that always pleases me. You know, I feel like I'm making a personal difference. Um, I mean, since running my own practice, um, I've been particularly proud of being able to like write a book and get that published. And now it's an audio book as well. So, um, and that was one of the reasons why I left the corporate world. Um, I, you know, I wanted the freedom to, to do my own creative projects, like, um, write a book and I've got my own podcast and, um, uh, do lots of blogs and things like that, you know? And so that, that's good. And, people learn a lot from those things and, you know, they, they say it, it, it's helpful on their own diversity and inclusion journey. Um, and as my, you know, as my business grows, um, I'm working with more and more organizations, growing my team, um, and, uh, and hopefully making a more of an impact in, in the working world and reducing inequality in the working world. I think that that's really Amazing. And I completely understand what you mean about that creative freedom when you're not, con- in my case, you know, I, I always make it really clear that when I do things like this podcast or if I'm interviewed by any media outlet in a personal capacity, I always have to sort of go, 
I'm not representing Scope here. You know, I'm I'm just representing me, even though so much of what I say Scope would 100% agree with. Um, but, you know, it's, it is always trying to make those barriers clear, mm. um, which, yeah, can be challenging at, at times. So I get what you mean. Um, so I think it's, it's also really interesting that, you know, you say that you're growing your team and I'd love to know. And I, I say this because I know that you have recently, am I right? You've recently hired another SMA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering sort of your, your team, how are you building that? You know, what do you see as the future of your practice? Yeah. So I, I appointed uh, a guy called Louis who's got SMA. Um, interesting. That I mean, that's an interesting story in itself because the person listening to us right now might go, "Hang on a minute, he's just recruited another guy with SMA." Isn't that like even con- like conscious bias going on right there? Um, exactly, it goes against one of those theories that you said about people hiring ones who look like you. Exactly, and it's interesting because I thought about this because I was thinking, you know. When we when we look at like the neuroleadership model, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, we've got that similarity bias. So you know, Louis Louis, who joined my team, is yeah. There I I there is that similarity bias going on. You know, we are both white blokes with SMA. Um, he's late thirties. I'm early forties. There's not a lot of age gap between us, um, and it's you know, it I, I did lie awake at night thinking, you know. Has um, has my unconscious bias got the better of me? Um, and um, yeah, so I mean, Louis, yeah, Louis joined the team. Um, his his focus right now is on business development and sales because we're getting a lot of interest from clients to work with us. So I need help with the, you know, with that side of things. Um, a lot of the work that I do, I do one to one with clients, um, but you know. I will be looking to expand the consultancy team so that people can deliver that work with me. Um, and, um, and you know, I'm developing training courses and I'd like people, I'd like to train people up to be able to deliver those training courses. So um, that's my, that's my plan. And I'm interested when you're working with clients, do you more focus on their sort of recruitment and employee side of diversity and inclusion or do you bring up anything around their customer base or their service users and how if they have a diverse workforce they can better meet the needs and understand the needs rather of Mm. their consumers so i i cover everything um and the 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 model that i've created which uh, it's the i call it the inclusive growth framework which is detailed in my book which is called the inclusive growth no it's called inclusive growth um covers seven key areas ranging from first of all getting clear on your business case for diversity and getting the data to support your strategy and developing your strategy through to looking at creating inclusive employee journeys and experiences through to how you communicate to the world in an, in an authentic way that you are a diverse and inclusive place to work. So the, we, the, the model itself is very holistic um, and that's deliberate because so many organisations 
and other consultants uh, or other models focus on particular groups. So, you know, they might have a focus on women in leadership or women in technology or people of an ethnic minority background, ignoring the fact um, that we've got this intersectional experience that, um, you know, you can, I suppose, face multiple discriminations based on being, uh, you know, a a woman who's disabled and black uh, versus me who's disabled, male, white and gay. Um, So, um, and a lot of kind of, a lot of organisations, I think, fail to acknowledge that 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 intersectionality when mm. they start putting their plans together um and that you just don't get it's just not an efficient way of of creating an inclusive culture yeah i really hear what you mean there i um won't say who it was with but i had a meeting with a um at the time someone who was fairly prominent um and got just completely talked over and interrupted and Sort of all of those things. And I went away thinking, is it because I'm disabled? Is it because I'm a woman? Or is it because I look somewhat young? You know, and, you know, mm-hmm. people perceive me to be younger than I actually am. So it's that, it's that fun game of why was I treated poorly? Let's, you know, look at the different characteristics that I have. Um, so I think that's, you know, it makes so much sense that you approach it from, as you say, the holistic uh, angle as opposed to just focusing on one particular characteristic. Yeah, and like you were saying, do I focus on customer inclusion? Mm. Um, I do talk about it in my book, um, and it's within the colleague experience chapter that I talk about in terms of journeys, like what is your customer journey? Could somebody buy something from your website or does your website not work with a screen reader so you know somebody who's blind or visually impaired might have difficulty purchasing something from you i do talk about that but my 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 specialty really is around the mm-hmm. workforce um but i a lot of my clients do ask me questions about customer inclusion customer experiences but i you know i i refer them on to people in my network who's kind of specialize in that area whether it's you know the physical built environment accessibility or digital accessibility on apps and websites or creating inclusive customer experiences that Mm. kind of thing but I think you know by addressing the workforce you will inevitably see a trickle down into the awareness of the diversity of your customers um Mm. you know if you only have people who are non-disabled or you only have people who are white, you're not going to know how to attract the customers that are outside of that group. So if you have a diverse workforce, you're sort of one step ahead in in your journey towards addressing the diverse customer base that you have, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What was the hardest barrier that you've had to overcome and again not just in the you know practice that you're leading now but overall what's been the hardest barrier for you um it's probably other people thinking that there are obstacles or challenges when there really isn't or shouldn't be 
you know, for instance, when I was trying to move from project management into production management, for instance, um, or I mean, I, I don't even know what category to put this in, but just other instances of I don't, is it discrimination or you know, discrimination or inequality? Like I remember, like when I first, you know, when I when I one of my first jobs, I was working in consultancy, and one of the you know my clients um, banned me from their office, or the health and safety manager came around and and basically banned me from the office because they said that you know I was a fire hazard. Oh, um, and you know that and and that was really distressing. And and at the time, I felt like my employer didn't really have my best interests at heart; that they were more concerned about not upsetting the client um and that was one of my reasons for leaving that particular organization so that there, there have been instances like that that have happened I, yeah i wish i didn't have multiple stories that spring to mind um yeah. that you know are similar to that experience of being told that you're a fire hazard i think that you know it's yeah, it's it's so disappointing that you felt that you had to leave and in that circumstance, but I completely understand why. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's I find that other people's sort of rigidity in their perceptions of disability and what like I was saying earlier, what we can and can't do is really difficult because we're we're the experts on what we can do or not do. I remember um, I was working on employment policy in a previous role, and I was trying to think about a job that I, as a wheelchair user, just wouldn't be able to do because I'm a wheelchair user. This was when I was at Muscular Dystrophy UK, so it was just looking at physical disabilities and I immediately thought oh what about a dog walker but then I thought hang on no there are definitely ways that I could walk a dog or walk several dogs but again you know it's it's the word walker that that people may initially think oh well she obviously can't do that but no let us work with you and let us collaboratively come up with a solution to that as opposed to the approach that yeah. was taken with you you know your fire hazard get out yeah yeah and maybe it's that internalized ableism again and I you reminded me like when I was really young I had a um I think I was I don't know maybe 14 or 15 um and I had a social worker who was fantastic because she had a disability herself and I remember we had this this session where I think like we were talking about what I wanted to do with my life or go off to, I think it was going off to university and stuff like that. And she was helping me mm. get my care packages set up and things like that. And I, I do remember now having this conversation where she, um, another one of her clients uh, wanted to become a farmer. And they, I grew up in the West country near Glastonbury. Mm. So obviously a lot of people go into agriculture and I said to her, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, how can somebody in a wheelchair become, you know, be a farmer? Like how yeah. on earth would you drive a tractor or get across a muddy field or, I don't know, run after sheep or whatever? And um, and uh, and then she was like, no, no, no. You know, if this person wants to become a farmer, 
then that's that, that's their that's their uh, you know mm. that's their prerogative and um and um you know adaptations can be made uh you know uh we can find ways of making the tractor accessible yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know that was one of my first memories of um i suppose you know make making things accessible by putting adjustments in place for the individual to do the well, job a good example though because i i immediately thought what you did like oh there are going to be problems for that person when they realize that they can't be a farmer but mm. you're you're completely right with the right adaptations um when i was working again in employment but at that point i was sort of advising young disabled people with muscular dystrophy on um sort of paths into employment i had this mom who called me and said that her son wanted to be a train driver so how could he get into that and i thought jesus i don't know uh, <laughs> yeah first of all i know nothing about trains but also i thought if you know if he's a non-ambulatory wheelchair user how was he going to get into the little, you know, train driver compartments and and all of that? But you know, there are ways around everything. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah I think that that's such a good example and uh, about the about the farmer. I really hope they went in and became a farmer. I never found out. I never found out. Um, but I mean, the thing I took around away from that really was the the mindset. And mm. even when you were describing about whether somebody with muscular dystrophy could become a train driver, you know, it's like, well, it's going to be difficult because, yeah, trains are not accessible at the best of times. Like getting a wheelchair into the driver compartment is going to be mm. impossible. And it would take a lot to make a train accessible. And is a train company going to want to or able to make a train driving compartment wheelchair accessible with hand controls or whatnot. I, I doubt it. Um, but, but I think you have to start from a place of um, like looking at the possibilities rather than just like shutting it down right at the beginning going, no, no, it's not possible for somebody in a wheelchair mm. to do this job. It's thinking like, yes. And how do we make this possible? Yeah, completely. I think, you know, you don't know until you give it a shot. Um, yeah. You know, it's, when you say, you know, all of those aspects of trains, you know, I completely agree that even as passengers, as a wheelchair user, good luck. Um, you know, in a lot of cases we do we do occasionally have success, but you know, it, it is challenging. And but again, what struck me about what you were just saying about the train companies making those adjustments, it reminded me of what you said about putting resources behind diversity mm. and inclusion and you know there are ways to make it work if you want it to and have the resources to so you know if that kid is somehow listening to this first of all i hope you did become a train driver if that's what you want to do and if not you know there it's you know not yeah. impossible i suppose yeah. is what we're saying yeah. um so I want to ask you, sort of this is a two-part question. First, I'll ask, what advice would you give your younger self? And what advice would you give others like you? That's a good question. Um, I think, first of all, it would be, um, uh, I think, 
I think the first bit of advice would be, you know, like you're 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 following the right path. And the thing is, you know, the path might not lead where you think it's going to lead. And it very rarely does in terms of like, you know, career development. But I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a police officer, you know, and and then I ended up working in IT. Um, and then I ended up getting into diversity and inclusion. I probably, when I was a teenager, I probably didn't think I was ever going to do diversity and inclusion work. I didn't even, I didn't even know what it mm. was. Um, mm. I think the biggest advice actually was around, um, probably around sexuality. Um, you know, I, I didn't come out as gay until I was 29. Um, and I wish I'd come out earlier. And I think, you know, that was because there was a lot of shame. Um, and also, I think that um, growing up, I suppose growing up with a disability and being gay, there was probably more emphasis on like the disability and like the medical side of mm. the, the disability as well, rather than other aspects of human development, like sexuality. Um, and I think that's a really common issue for disabled people that a lot of disabled people are not seen mm. as sexual beings <laughs> yeah. that we are asexual and um yeah. you know and the focus needs to be on fixing us and going for surgery and having physio and treatments and not a not a lot of emphasis based on paid on our emotional well-being and our sexual health and things like that yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, I I know that you know I've had this myself, but you know, I know so many friends as well who you know medical professionals in particular just assume that oh, you're definitely not having sex. So yeah. you know, and that's in you know, I think it's so interesting your comment about sexuality and. Um, I just, I, I have to share this really amazing thing that I heard on the Guilty Feminist podcast um, with Rosie Jones, and who is, you know, a famous disabled queer person. And she talked about her experience growing up and how she thought, well, surely I can't be gay and disabled, you know, they like, they uh-huh. don't exist, do they? Um, so I think it's... You know, I think that's really good advice is to not ignore like the other parts of what make you you because everyone just focuses on this one aspect of who you are and have ideas of what that means for you and your life. And yeah, that's that's so important for everyone to hear, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. So what advice would you give to others sort of like us I don't just mean SMAers you know but people just yeah occupying the same space as us other people in the disabled community um I would say first of all um you know if you've got if you've got an idea of doing something then um just go ahead and do it and if people tell you that it can't be done or it's going to be too difficult, just be stubborn and go and do it anyway. Um, 
like I'm a really stubborn person and and I've heard this about lots of people with us and I we're we're very we're fiercely independent um people um and we uh, there's a lot of high achievers within the SMA community and I think that's because we just don't take no for an answer um and so yeah if you've got an idea just like go and do it um I don't want to kind of prescribe what ideas mm. people might have but you know it could be a business idea it could be a personal goal um you know it could be anything it could be anything but you know don't don't let anybody tell you you can't do something because of your disability I think SMAers are notoriously stubborn I've never met an SMAer who's comfortable taking no for an answer and why should we, to be quite honest? So no, I, I absolutely yeah. love that advice. And yeah, I just want to say a huge thank you for coming on this podcast and for talking out so openly about your experiences and about the amazing work that you're doing. It's been really, really interesting. So yeah, Toby, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me along. And it was it was really great to chat with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wheelchair Activist with Toby Milden. It was so interesting to learn about all things unconscious bias and how he goes about addressing that in the diversity and inclusion space. Before you go, I want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe set up for this podcast. We are 100% committed to accessibility here at The Wheelchair Activist, and we want to make sure that every bit of content is inclusive and accessible to all. Every donation allows us to continue doing this work, which includes captioning each and every episode and making it available on YouTube. Thank you so, so much to everyone who has donated so far and has allowed us to continue making this amazing podcast. Please give this podcast a share far and wide so everyone can enjoy the amazing content. This podcast has been hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, produced by me and Isabel Anderson, and edited by Joe Tapper. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to see you in the next one.